Aren't you glad that you came to church today? Aren't you glad that you joined us online? It's a good day, and uh, we are grateful uh, to be able to gather together. We don't take that lightly, and to have the privilege of coming together in the name of the Lord, and uh, very, very exciting. Um, I'm always excited when we start a new series, and then you throw baptisms on, on top of that. And uh, we baptized four in the first service. Two of them were my kids, so if I lose it up here, that's why. I'm about to come unglued, uh, just filled with joy, and uh, I pray that for you as well. We're starting a new series today titled Trust and Obey, and uh, that fits really, really well with the theme that we're on this year with our focus on disciple-making. Uh, which we define as building a relationship with someone in order to help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. So, so that fits really well. Last year we were focused on discipleship, on the noun. This year we're focused on the verb, disciple-making, that we're challenging everybody to make yourself a disciple and then begin, or maybe you're already there, start making someone else a disciple as well. Start building a relationship with someone in order to teach them to trust and follow Jesus. And so that's where trust and obey comes in. To trust is to believe in, not just that Jesus is who he said is, but to believe in that, to believe in it, to put your hope in it, to put your faith in it, to trust in it and cling to it and rely upon it and it alone. But in that definition of making disciples, teach them not only to trust Jesus, but to follow him, to obey him, to do what he said to do to obey his teachings. And so this series carries that forward, and it fits really well with our mission statement here at Linwood to reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong, and help them grow in their faith. And when we talk about helping people grow in their faith, the main way we want to be doing that is by making disciples who will make disciples, and by teaching them to trust and follow Jesus. Now, we define discipleship as learning to live as Jesus would if he were me. That's a great definition of discipleship, simply learning to live as Jesus would if he were me. Now, you might say, well, that's easy for you, Pastor Mark. You're, you're a pastor. That's, like, that's probably what Jesus would do if he was living. He would be a pastor. And, and I say, yeah, but I really feel like Jesus doesn't just need everybody to be a pastor. He needs fully devoted followers of Christ in our school system and in small businesses and in the medical field and in every other aspect of society. He needs people that are influencing, people who are intentionally building a relationship with others in their sphere, in their neighborhood, in their family, in their workplace, to help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. And so when we talk about doing this, and the reason that we had an emphasis on discipleship last year and an emphasis on disciple-making this year is that this is the main thing. Like, when you read the Gospels, this was the main thing that Jesus devoted his life to. It was the last thing that he told his followers to make sure that we do. And as Stephen Covey said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Have you heard that phrase before? Have you heard that quote before? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I realize as a pastor, if we get everything else right, and we do everything else that a church is supposed to do, but we don't make disciples, we failed. We failed the mission. And if we as individual Christians do everything right, but we don't make disciples who make disciples, then we haven't kept the main thing the main thing. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. So we're going to keep talking about this uh, because I'm convinced that if discipleship is learning to live my life as, as Jesus would if he were me, I'm convinced that if Jesus were you, 
he'd be making disciples. He'd be making disciples in your workplace, in your family, in your relationships, in your neighborhood, even if you're retired or maybe you're in a nursing home. Like, look at the last hours of Jesus' life. How did he spend the last hours of his life? He spent it with his disciples, teaching them about the Holy Spirit, showing them what it meant to serve one another in love by washing their feet, and then going to the cross and dying. So I believe that Jesus was committed to discipleship right up to the last moment. And so as we start this series titled Trust and Obey, we're going to begin today's message titled Living by Faith, that part of trusting God and trusting Jesus and obeying Him is living by faith, living a life of faith. And we have some great examples in Scripture. You could make a case that there are none better than Paul in the New Testament and David in the Old Testament that Paul and David set an example for us, and more Scripture is devoted to them or written by them than just about anybody else other than Jesus and maybe the patriarchs. You could make that case. When you read the Old Testament, all of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings is, is centered around David's life, essentially. And then he writes all these psalms, and, and so much of the Old Testament is through the lens of David. And then you move to the New Testament. We've been reading in our Banding Together journals and our reading plan. We've been reading about Acts, and about half of the book of Acts focuses around Paul's life. And then almost half of the New Testament is written by Paul in the form of letters to the churches that he planted. And so when we look at their lives and we look at the Scripture that they wrote for us, Paul and David give us wonderful examples of completely surrendered lives totally sold out for the gospel, totally sold out for following Jesus and making Him famous and declaring His good news to others. And so if you're in the Banding Together uh, journals and the reading plan, you can pick these up here. If you don't have one, if you're about to fill one up, really exciting. We've gone through about 60 of these so far this year, since the beginning of the year, and we had already given out a box last year. So this is getting into people's hands, and people are reading about a chapter a day, and then they do a journaling process. The whole thing can take anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. You can take longer if you want to, Um, but the sermon series this year coordinate with that reading plan. So one of the cool things is like if you do that reading plan, you come to church on Sunday, you'll hear a message about something you just read, or in this case, something you're about to read, and it will help bring some cohesiveness and some understanding. And, and so that's very, very intentional. And uh, right now in that reading plan, we're finishing up the book of Acts and we're moving into some of the letters of Paul. And so this week you're going to read Galatians and we're going to have a message from Galatians. You're going to read some of the Psalms that we're focusing on this morning. And we're looking specifically at how Paul and David show us and tell us how to live by faith. I want to start with Psalm 27. Uh, this is a psalm that David writes, and it, it just sets a foundation for us as we think about trusting and obeying and living a life of faith. So if you turn, um, if you've got one of our blue hardcover Bibles here in the room, it's page 864. If you're joining us online, just turn to Psalm 27. I'm going to read it in the New International Version. It'll also be on the screen behind me, or, or for those of you watching online, it'll be there as well. And here's what David says in the first verse, right off the bat. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom 
shall I be afraid? And so right in this first verse, he identifies the Lord as three different things. Did you catch that? He's his light, his salvation, and the stronghold of his life. And I think these are critical components as we talk about living by faith. We recognize that God is the source of light in our life. His light shines into our life. David said elsewhere, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That it illuminates the way for us. It shows us the way. And in Revelation, we're told that God is light. Like, He's light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It's like David had a a spiritual understanding that the Lord is His personal light and His salvation. Salvation speaks to rescue, whereas light brings illumination and brings guidance. Salvation comes and rescues us, rescues us from our sin, rescues us from our trials and our troubles, rescues us from an eternity separated from God, and brings us into His presence. And then he says something else in that second phrase. He says, the Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life. That means God is a place of protection. Our relationship with Him is a place of protection, a place of security that we can go to, that we can run to. And so all of this should bring us great freedom from fear, freedom from being lost because God gives us direction, freedom from being lost and apart from Him for eternity because God brings us salvation and God brings us protection, eternal protection, because He is our stronghold as well. And then in the next couple of verses, He speaks about a specific set of circumstances, but I want to focus on verse 4 and 5 where David kind of responds to this reality of who God is. And he says in verse 4 what he's going to do, and in verse 5 what he knows God will do. In verse 4, he says, "'One thing I ask of the Lord.'" This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. So this is what David's going to do. This is his response to who God is. In the midst of his circumstances, this is what we should do as well. We should ask. Look at the verbs. Ask. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I could seek the Lord all the days of my life, that I could dwell with the Lord, that I could live there. That could gaze upon him, not just glance occasionally, but gaze upon him and seek him. There's it, there it is again. Those are the verbs that, that David says he's going to do. These are the things that we ought to be doing as well. And notice none of these are like flash in the pan, temporary, sporadic things. These are all consistent lifestyle things. Like this is the one thing that I would ask of the Lord that I could be with him, that I could gaze upon him, that I could dwell with him. Jesus said it this way in John 15. He said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. This isn't a one-time event. This isn't like, okay, one time when I was a teenager or when I was a kid, I gave my life, I prayed the prayer, and I'm good to go, and you go on living the way you did before. That's not what we're talking about. We're not even talking about once a week or once a month, right? Because some, some folks, it's more like once a month than once a week. We're talking about daily. We're talking about moment by moment. We're talking about asking, seeking, gazing upon Him, dwelling and abiding in Him and living our lives with Him, living by faith. In verse 5, David tells us what God will do. He says, For in the day of trouble, He, the Lord, will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will abide. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. This is what God does for us. He keeps us safe. He hides us and shelters us with Him. And He sets us high upon a rock. Now think about this for a moment, because this was the kind of the revelation for me this last time through this passage, that God's dwelling, 
His tabernacle, that's heaven, right? That's not just limited to the temple. God is not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. His dwelling place is heaven. His dwelling place is His dominion. His dominion is everywhere. God, this is an eternal promise. This is an eternal reality that God will make us safe, keep us safe in heaven. And the rock in verse 5 that He sets us upon, I believe that's, that rock is Jesus. Jesus is that rock, and He sets us on Him, and we are secure in Him. So these are eternal realities. These are eternal promises, and this is eternally good news. This should bring eternal comfort to us and to our lives. And so David's words in Psalm 27 sort of set a foundation for us. I want to spend a good chunk of time talking about uh, Paul's words to the church and the churches, I should say, in Galatia. These were churches that he planted when he was on his missionary journeys. Galatia is essentially modern-day Turkey. So if you think about that region of the world, uh, Paul wrote this letter, and it was circulated widely among that area. And there are manuscripts that were found all over the place there in the churches of Asia. And in this letter that he wrote to the Galatian churches, uh, in chapter 2, he's, he's making a case, he's making an argument that we no longer rely upon our good works and our ability to keep the law for our justification or our righteousness before God, that it's not what we do that makes us right because we are going to fall short. We are going to sin and fall short, and our capacity is incomplete, but Jesus's is not. Jesus's capacity to live the perfect sinless life, and that we put our faith in Him, then we are made right. We are justified by faith in Jesus. And so he says in verse 19, if you're following along here in the sanctuary, that's page 1811. Um, but he says this in verses 19 through 21, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could come or be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So this is sort of the summation to his argument that he's making. This is like the, the left hook at the end. This is the, the final punch to his argument. And he's basically saying, like, it is through Christ. It is like not living unto ourselves in the power of our own flesh to, to do more, try harder, and do the best, and be the best that we can be, and hope that that's enough. It's, it's putting our faith and trust completely in Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior. And so I want to walk through these verses uh, one at a time and really make sure we understand what's being said here, because in verse 19, he makes an interesting statement. He says, through the law, I died to the law, through the law. And you might say, well, how did he die to the law, through the law? And I believe he's saying that the law convicted him of his sin. It made him aware that he was sinful, that he had separated himself from God. The law convicted him of his sin, but it also pointed him to Christ. You see, Paul had a reputation everywhere he went. He made convincing arguments to the people there, even the Jewish people, that Jesus was the Messiah, that all of the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets, it pointed to Jesus. It pointed to him as the Messiah, and Jesus did every single thing. He fulfilled every single prophecy, and he died that perfect sinless death and was resurrected by the power of God to live forever, and he gives us that same opportunity. And so he says, through the law, I was not only convicted of my sin, I was also pointed to Jesus. I died 
to the law. That means he's no longer seeking justification from the law. He's no longer seeking justification from his ability to follow the law, to uphold the law, to make the right sacrifices and do the right things. It doesn't mean he turns his back entirely on God's will and God's desires for his life, but he recognizes that his hope and his faith is entirely in Jesus Christ. He's trusting entirely on Jesus for justification. He has died to the law. So that, don't miss the so that, circle of the so that. Every time you're reading your Bible and you see a so that or a therefore, circle it. So that I might live for God, he says. So through the law, I died to the law so that I might live. Not so that I could go and do whatever I wanted. (laughs) Not so that I could live a reckless, selfish life on my own. But so that I might live for God. That's the purpose behind the promise so that I might live for God. And I love the way the English Standard Version Study Bible explains this verse and explains this passage of, of dying to the law so that I could live for God. It says this, it says, Paul is always seeking to live in a way that pleases God, yet not at all depending on his own actions for justification. Do you see the division there? He's, he's always striving to live in a way that will be pleasing to God out of gratitude, out of the joy, out of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. He's seeking to live in a way that will bring glory to God, that will be pleasing to God, but he's not counting on that for his salvation. He's counting on Jesus and Jesus alone. He's not depending on his ability to be pleasing to God for his salvation. He's depending on Jesus, and that's a really important distinction, and it's essentially what we're talking about in this whole series of trusting and obeying, of trust and obey, of living by faith. This is a daily thing. This is a moment-by-moment thing. This is morning, noon, and night thing. This is living. This isn't something Paul did once, and we know that that's true because of what he says next in verse 20. And, and I said this in the first service, and I, I'm saying it again. Like, if I could get everybody in the world to memorize one verse of Scripture, it would probably be this one. Like, there's some good ones out there, And if you don't agree, then memorize two, but make sure this one is on your list. Because, and I know people say, well, Pastor Mark, I just can't, I've tried, I can't memorize scripture, but I bet you can remember songs from when you were in high school, you can sing them to me, right? Like I got the first three albums of Garth Brooks memorized, I sing them to my wife and kids, they're not impressed, nobody's paying to hear me sing Garth Brooks. But I'll bet you a nickel, and I'm willing to lose a lot of nickels on this, that if you write out Galatians 2.20 every day for a month, you'd have it memorized. It'll take you a few minutes a day. You could memorize this. You could wash this so deep into your soul that when you're struggling, it pops into your head. And when you're having a bad day, you remind yourself, hey, you know what? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when you invite somebody to church and they say, why would I go to your church? And you say, because I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's right there on the tip of your tongue. I think that would be a step in the right direction if every single person that's listening to this right now and every single person that's not listening to this right now would memorize that, would let that truth wash into them. And be right there on the tip of their tongue, right there on the surface of their mind. Because this verse is essentially the gospel in a nutshell. It explains 
and expands what he's saying in verse 19. There's the emphasis on death, on resurrection, on new life. It's the song we just sang this morning. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Like there is a death that has taken place in my life, the death to my will, to my ego, to my flesh, to myself, so that I can be resurrected into new life in Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's been crucified. Not just killed, but crucified. Pay attention to that. Crucifixion is a very specific kind of death. It's like a suffocation. It's horrible. There's a crucifixion that takes place to our flesh, to our ego, so that we can live for Christ, so that we can rely upon Him and Him alone. And so we're crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Now, some people say, well, does that mean we're all just a bunch of little robots and we don't have any personality? It's not I who live. It's not my will, my flesh, any of that. It's just Jesus. Well, I think if we look at what Paul wrote and we look at how he lived his life and the the speeches that he made and the things that he did, this guy had a lot of personality. There There was still a lot of what made Paul Paul but it was now brought completely under the lordship of Christ. And that's what we have to see is we crucify anything in us that is apart from Jesus, that sets himself, ourselves up apart from Jesus, and we set our new life entirely in Jesus and say that he is calling the shots. As I said last week, he is the king on the throne. I'm no longer on the throne of my life calling the shots for my life. Jesus is. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ and that I no longer live, but he lives in me. Back this fall, we had a series on Romans chapter 12 titled Plan B. And in that first couple of verses there of Romans 12, he talks about being living sacrifices. To no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we would be living sacrifices for God. Not dying sacrifices, which was the old system, but living sacrifices where we say, I'm crucified with Christ. He's going to live in me now. I'm going to live for Him. My will is turned over to His. And he continues on this. He says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. The life I live. This is, this is our message today is living by faith. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Christ works in and through all that we do. It's not segmented. It's not like, okay, I've got my half hour in the morning and then I say a prayer before each meal and I do a little devotional at night and you scrape that all together and it's 45 minutes. It's like, no, it's like the whole day is living by faith and building a relationship with Jesus that is current. And as soon as we recognize that we've departed from it, we come back to it and we, we stay in moment by moment living by faith. Why? Last phrase, who loved me. He reminds himself, and he reminds the Galatians who Jesus is, who loved me and gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. This was a deeply personal exchange to Paul. This was not some transaction that took place that that was mechanical or impersonal. Paul is saying, yeah, he died for everyone, but he died for me. And I would say to you, he died for everyone in the world, but he died for you. He died for the person sitting in your chair. He died for you personally. It was a deeply personal exchange. Christ's righteousness for our sin. This is miraculous, miraculous stuff. 
And that's why I think he says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. Because to neglect this, to forget this, to go on living as you did before when you're confronted with this is to set aside the grace of God, to set aside the gift of God. He's saying, I don't do that. I keep it front and center. Because if he hasn't set it aside, then it's front and center. He's got his eyes fixed on Jesus. He says, I don't set aside the grace of God. I keep it front and center because if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. He's saying, I don't set it aside. I keep it front and center. I'm living by faith. I'm relying on grace, not on ourselves. He has a recognition that sin is so serious that only the substitutionary death of Christ, only Christ being our substitute, paying the penalty for our sin, that's the only solution to the sin problem. It's Jesus. It's not my good works. It's Jesus. And out of my gratitude for him solving that problem for me, I live a life of love and hope and courage by faith in Jesus. And each of us has to come to that place. Each of us has to come to the place where we rely on grace, not on ourselves. And we don't set aside the grace of God. We embrace the grace of God. We keep the grace of God front and center because it will compel us to live those lives of love and hope and courage if we keep it front and center, if we remind ourselves often, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's our bottom line today is that Christ died for you so that you could live with Him forever. Like not just this week or not just the rest of your earthly life, but, but forever. That's the good news, that Christ died for you so that you can live with Him and live for Him forever. Not just here and now. We get this messed up idea because we're kind of trapped in these human bodies. We get this idea that, well, I, I'll accept Jesus now and I'll live the rest of my life and then when I die, I'll live forever. That's not the way it works. Like, we are body, soul, and spirit. Our bodies will die. But when you accept Jesus Christ into your life and you turn your life and your will and your mind and your emotions and your thoughts and your actions over to Him, you begin eternal life right there. And your soul and spirit will never die. They will be kept forever with Christ in heaven. That's good news. You don't have to wait to die to start your eternal life. You can begin it right now. You can begin living in freedom right now. You can begin pursuing holiness right now. Not just there and then, but here and now. And he's basically saying that when we choose to die by faith, to, to lay down our lives, to lay down our wills, to lay down our egos, to lay down our flesh, when we die by faith in Jesus Christ, we live by faith in Jesus Christ. We move to another plane. And we live eternal lives by faith. And so I want to close with another psalm. And, and this kind of wraps everything up for us today. It's Psalm 24, where David kind of starts really, really big with the whole world, and he brings it, I believe, all the way in to the very heart of our, like my heart, your heart, David's heart. And so uh, listen to Psalm 24. Uh, this isn't on the screen. You can follow along in a Bible if you want to, or you can just kind of close your eyes and listen or sit back and listen. But here's what David says in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? 
who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. And then you might have heard these verses before as well. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And when I read those verses a year ago, today, many of you read those verses this morning in your Banding Together journal, I wrote this response, especially on those last three verses. I said, I've always loved this passage. And there's a Chris Tomlin song that goes with it. And then this insight came to me, and I don't claim it as my own. It's just this idea that a king rules over a domain. That's what a king does. They rule over a domain. And if he's the king of glory, that means God rules over all that is glorious. It's his. And the first two verses talk about how the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. They all belong to him. The next four verses explain that we enter into his glorious presence through holiness and purity, in order to worship Him. That's the purpose. That's how we do it. And I think that this must mean that the last four verses and that the ancient gates and the ancient doors that are spoken of apply not only to Jerusalem, to its gates and its doors, but to my heart so that the King of glory can enter into my heart and conquer sin and death on my behalf. The phrase mighty in battle also stands out to me because God does not lose His battles. He's mighty in battle. He's invincible, some translations say. When He fights, He wins. So when we let Him in and we surrender completely to Him, then He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. When we open the gates of our hearts to allow God to come in and conquer us and conquer sin and death with us and on our behalf, then We live by faith. We live by faith in Him. And He will bring us to completion. And so the question as we close is this, have you opened the doors of your heart? Have you opened the gates of your heart to allow the King of glory to come in and to make you glorious with Him from the inside out? To push the sin out of your life, to cleanse the sin out of your life, to make you right before God, to say you are justified by faith, in Him? Have you let the King of glory come in? And are you living by faith in the Son of God who loves you and who gave Himself for you? Our bottom line is that Christ died for you so that you could live with Him forever. And forever can start today. Might be salvation coming into somebody's life today that somebody that's in this room or somebody that's listening online and maybe you, you came to watch somebody be baptized or you logged on to see a friend or a family member get baptized and yet as you've listened, you've heard 
the good news of the gospel, and, and you want to respond to that, and you want to embrace that, and you want to be able to say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. I have, have turned my will, my flesh, my desires away, over, and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior to live by faith in Him. Maybe today's the day of salvation for somebody. Or maybe it's baptism. Maybe you've been saved, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've never been baptized. And we talk a lot about this because it's an important step in our faith journey. It's an important step in identifying with Jesus and making a public profession of our faith in Him. And so there are eight people that are going to be baptized, but maybe there are nine or ten. Don't let the logistics get in the way. We've got shorts that you can change into. We'll give you a free t-shirt. You can change back into your clothes. We've even got extra towels. If you're watching online and you're like, shucks, I missed it. No, just let us know. We'll fill it next week. You can come and be baptized next week. Whatever the Spirit is, is nudging you towards, respond to that in faith. And maybe you've been saved and you've been baptized and you're so excited about those that are making that step and taking that step. And you're saying, well, what's my response? Maybe it's to tell somebody. Maybe it's to identify a part of your life, a part of your will that you've taken back and to surrender that anew and afresh. I don't know what the Spirit might be saying, but my prayer is always that we would be a people who listen and who respond in faith. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the gospel and for the invitation that you make to each and every one of us that we can accept you as Lord and Savior, that we can be crucified with you and that we can be raised to new life in you. Lord, it's good news that though sin was strong and the power of shame is strong, your love is stronger, your grace is stronger, the power of the cross is stronger. And so I pray right now, Lord, for your spirit to have free reign. And if there's somebody that's ready to make a profession of faith in you, to, to lay down their lives and live a new life in Christ, I pray that they will respond in faith right now, that they will confess their sin, they will confess their need for a Savior, that they will commit to follow you all the days of their life. And for those that maybe are, are recognizing that today's the day to be baptized, that nothing would hold them back from that, Lord. And for all of us to be a people who tell what we have seen and heard, who tell the good things that you have done, that you would be reigning, sitting on the throne of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.